Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in in what part of the country? Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finman. We've got a great show for you today. We're going to be doing a rebroadcast of an earlier show with Professor Howard Lupovich. Very fascinating. The Jewish vote. we got Election Day coming up in less than a month. So when I got my absentee ballot, which I have not yet opened because it's been between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and getting ready for Sukkot and the upcoming holiday of Sukkot, which is this week, by the way, which we're going to be talking about in the second half of the show. I haven't had time to open, even look at my absentee ballot, but I've been in inundated now i'm getting inundated in my emails with all kinds of vote for this don't vote for that but it's all good with the wonders of democracy i'd rather have this rather than what my great-grandfather had in poland thank you very much we have jewish music scattered throughout the show some insights into sukkahs as we said before a wonderful hasidic story all the way at the end before we do anything else let's go right to the news Talks between Israel and Lebanon over the rights of offshore natural gas drilling broke down after a tentative agreement was reached last week. Under the agreement, Israel would get the larger of the gas fields and collect royalties from the other under Lebanese control. Lebanon later balked at all these royalties. As a result, Israel defense forces on the Lebanese border are on high alert because they don't know what's going to happen next. But I guess nobody does. Palestine. This is some, some decent news coming out of the West Bank. Palestinian security forces rescued three Israeli tourists from Hebron after the car was surrounded by a mob. It's not the good news was that they were surrounded by a mob, but that they were rescued. Likewise, in Shechem, Palestinian security forces rescued a woman and her three children after they were pulled out of their car by an armed mob. That's really scary. The Palestinian guide who accompanied them was shot in the leg, and I'm not sure if that was by IDF forces or by the armed mob. In other news, coming in terrorist attacks from Israel, one Israeli was wounded near Shechem. The IDF is looking for the attacker. Two Arab attackers were shot and killed by IDF soldiers near Shechem when they tried to ram into the soldiers. A Palestinian wanted for a terrorist attack in Eitamar was killed by Israeli forces outside Shechem, and one Arab terrorist was arrested outside Shechem, lots of things going around Shechem, for putting a bomb in a gas station. 
newspaper around anti-Semitic incidents around the world that I came across my desk, newspaper vendor boxes in Queens. They still have those things. You put the money in, you take the paper out. And I don't know why anybody just doesn't take all the papers, but then what are you going to do with them? But I guess if you need to like, you know, your kitty litter box. But anyway, newspaper vendor boxes in Queens were spray painted with swastikas and anti-Semitic symbols on Yom Kippur. Windows were shattered in the synagogue in Hanover, Germany during Yom Kippur services. No one was hurt. And other news, some good news. We'll end off on a couple of good newses. Spain became the next country to pass anti-BDS legislation. This one's really tough. It is now illegal in Spain for any company to boycott, divest funds, or issue sanctions against Israel. Illegal. You can't do it. And finally, Anton Zellinger won the Nobel Prize in physics. He's the only Jew to win a Nobel Prize this year out of about 14. Okay, we'll do better next year. And that's the news. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Online, we have Professor Howard Lupovich. He's been here before, and we'll probably have him on again after this, too. One of my favorite professors from the Cohen Haddow Center at Wayne State University here in Detroit. How are you today, Howard? Good. How are you, Rabbi? Thanks to hear from you. Thank you. The pleasure is ours. We've got Election Day coming up in a week or so, and there's always the question about something referred to as, quote-unquote, the Jewish vote. Now, I have personal experience with what might be deemed the Jewish vote. It's a story that happened to me. I was six years old. And when I was six years old, they closed the school for election day so that, as my mother told me, so that the teachers could go work in the polls. I said, when six years old, I said, how long does it take the teachers to vote? And she said, no, 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 they go work in the polls. So, okay, fine. So they're the whole day. So so I'm jumping on my mother's head, basically. I got nothing to do. I'm bored, six years old, whatever. So she says, I lived upstairs with my, my bubby, my grandmother. She says, go downstairs and help bubby. So I said, okay, fine. So I ran downstairs. I said, bubby, mom says you need help. She says, I'm going voting. Okay, she's going to vote. She says, you want to come? I said, fine, good. She got dressed. She put on her her, her dress. Like she, she, I remember my grandmother clearly, and the best would be described as a muumuu and these house shoes that had the sides of the shoes cut out for her bunions. She put on her Shabbos shoes. She put on her, her, her little hat that she wore. And we walked a half a block down to Burgoy Avenue School in Newark. And I said, Bubby, can I come in with a voting booth with you? She says, no, not your business. And my bubby was like 4'11", so she had to like reach up and there's this big, huge voting booth and she closes the curtain on it and she's here this click, 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 click. And then she opens it up and I say, Bubby, who did you vote for? 
Not a word, nothing, like I wasn't even standing there. We walk halfway down the block. She stops. She turns. She looks around both ways, and she whispers in my ear, Johnson. So I got it from there so I can say we had, like, Democrats, like, firmly fixed into our the Finman family from way back when. But so let's talk about Howard. You're, you've, you've got this historical anthropological uh, approach to it. So Jews came to this country. In the 1880s, the big wave from the 1880s through the mid-1920s, from places where they didn't have voting. My grandfather told me that he didn't know what voting was when he came to this country in 1909. Somebody told him you get to pick a leader. He's coming from Poland. Who picks a leader in Poland? So how, did, how, does a, how do we get something called a, a block of voters from such an immigrant community? Well, um, it's a great question, and thank you. That's a great story. We all have our stories. We all have our grandparents' stories about voting. Uh, wait, 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 wait! Stop, 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 stop! You have a story about your grandparents well, voting? Uh, mine's, a, mine's a simpler one. My my grandma, blessed memory, when she would vote, she had a system, and the system was first she would pick the Jewish names. I think after the Jewish names came the Italian names, but she didn't know from politics. She was just looking for names. Okay. She was, looking, she was, she was just looking for familiarity. That was my first. Voting. But I also come from a family that had always voted staunchly Democrat. And I think that when Jews came to America, of course, as you say, the experience of voting for the overwhelming majority of Jews was something brand new in America, as it was for people who came to America, because most people in Europe, even in countries that, were, that had voting, they rarely had universal voting. Even, when they, even, even in countries where Jews were emancipated, a country they wouldn't let all men vote. Obviously, women could, women couldn't vote yet. There was a property requirement. So there were countries when when they spoke of you know universal suffrage, it really meant universal property male suffrage, and maybe twenty percent of the population would vote, uh, and 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 only men. Obviously, it's just when Jews came to America, uh, they really experienced the opportunity to vote for the first time. And, and I would say if we look back over the last century of Jewish voting, that there's two patterns in the way Jews vote. First, for the most part, the majority of, of Jews have, have tended to the left, not to the right. They've tended to vote for uh, Democrats or progressives. That's one thing. And a minority of Jews voted more, more, more conservatively. The other thing is Jews tend to be more moderate than extreme in either direction. But even, even the, for Jews who voted left, only a minority would vote for more Latin, more radical left-wing parties. Very few Jews voted communist, which was never much of a party here. And but but even a relative minority voted for for socialists. Your typical Jewish voter was a moderate left-wing voter, and that's one of the reasons why, for example, during the Depression, Jews voted overwhelmingly for FDR and the New Deal, which okay. compared to more radical options was more moderate. That's interesting because people ask me if I'm a liberal or conservative. And I tell people, I've said this for 40 years, I am a radical moderate. I will fight to the end for that, right in the middle road. So it's just, it's just like, okay, so I guess I fit right into the Jewish thing. Did it, how right, was, right in the sweet spot, yes. Yes. That's, so, how, Jews, that's how most Jews have voted. Was this, was this Jews were like, as soon as they got off the boat, were thinking philosophically, or was it a better marketing com- campaign by the, the liberals than the conservatives? The conservatives said, I was a bunch of immigrants, and we're stuffed white shirts, and we don't need those people. Uh, no, well, part of it was marketing, certainly, because 
uh, more conservative parties, they were only interested in rich people. Uh, and uh, and most Jews who came to America were lower income. They were lower middle class or they were working class. And what the left wing parties were offering was in a very practical way, you know, a limit and the number of hours you could be required to work, uh, public schooling for children. These were issues that Jews, like, like others in the same social class, were much more interested in and really affected their life daily. So the Jews didn't know from the stock market. Most Jews didn't have the portfolio to be worried about high finance. Most Jews were concerned about day-to-day things. But also, as you said, in a very grassroots marketing kind of way, on the Jewish street, in Jewish neighborhoods, it was representatives of uh, the Democrats, those parties that would, that would, that, that would uh, really speak to Jews. And by the time we get to, let's say, 1913 or 1915, the most high-profile Jew of any kind in America is Justice Louis Brandeis. And as Brandeis voted or as Brandeis trended, that's what Jews did. He was this iconic figure. And what he was advocating, first of all, he was advocating a program that was very good and helpful to ordinary people, Jews and otherwise. But he's the one that really drew. He was the, he was the one that Jews followed. That's there was no... There was no right-wing parallel, right-wing Jewish parallel to Louis Brandeis. That's interesting. As a Supreme Court justice, was he involved in politics? Well, uh, before just... he was a Supreme Court justice, he was a labor lawyer. He was one of the first high-profile attorneys who defended labor unions. And so, so while he wasn't doing this for political reasons, I think, I think he was doing it for more ideological reasons. He believed in labor unions. You can't not be seen as a political figure if you're defending labor unions in court. He was one of the main reasons why labor unions were able to exist at a time when they were still illegal. Brandeis helped make labor unions legal. Fascinating. I, I, now I'm smarter. Thank you so much, Howard. Our guest today is Howard Lupovich from the Cohen Haddow's Center of Judaic Studies at Wayne State University. We're talking about the Jewish vote. So FDR... When, when, like the old people in my grandmother's generation, my mother's generation, they talk about FDR. They talk about they, they just like get this like fairy look in their eyes. It's just like wow. He was like he was like the, the <laughs> he was almost the Mashiach already. How did, kind of, yeah. how did how did that go? How did that develop? How did he do that? Well, it was a combination of two things. First of all. FDR was the first, as a politician, first in New York and then nationally, to speak out against the standard approach to economics. Because in America, before the New Deal, the standard approach of economics, and this is Hoover and Harding and Calvin Coolidge, was basically the government should not get involved. Now, what's good for General Motors is good for the USA and vice versa. Laissez-faire, the government was hands-off. But that meant there was no social safety net. And uh, that, that point of that mentality regarded you know, periodic recessions and depressions as part of the natural business cycle without caring what it did to ordinary working people. And, FD, and it wasn't working. And the Great Depression was the ultimate example where lower income people, working ordinary people were really just crushed. And there was no Social Security and, or any of those other programs. So FDR was one of the first to say that needs to change. That conventional approach to business, which the conservative parties of America are endorsing, which seems only to help a minority of rich people and leaves everyone else up, that has to change. So part of it was he was advocating things, these, these new ideas, 
which just resonated with many people. But it was also the way he advocated. He, he started the fireside chats. He was one of the, the first presidents whose, whose addresses would go, we would now say he was viral. He would get, he would get a, he used radio to speak to, 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 the, to the nation, to speak to ordinary people at a time when, a, when more and more people had radios in their homes. But he also, when he would give those fireside chats, they weren't these formal political speeches. He, he spoke like an ordinary person to ordinary people. At the same time, he was also dignified. He was also very articulate. He wasn't crass. He wasn't vulgar. He was the opposite of all those things. So he just was the right combination of the right ideas. He knew how to speak to ordinary people, but also do it in a way which was dignified and articulate without being inaccessible. I think the president that later would recall him the most was Bill Clinton. Because Bill Clinton could explain complex ideas in ordinary terms that ordinary people could appreciate. That's what FDR is. One of his gifts was being able to do that. And he could also turn a phrase. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. That message at the beginning of the Depression was such a powerful message. So he he knew how to market his ideas. He knew how to reach people. And he had a great portfolio of ideas, just what people needed to hear. Okay, so now our, uh, we're talking about like a Jewish block. My mother told me, she's a, uh, a blessed memory, when I said to her, I said, I assume that when you had the first opportunity to vote, you voted, her first, first election was 1948, and I said, oh, you voted for Truman, right? And she said, no, I voted for Henry Wallace, who was like more progressive, more liberal than, than Truman was. Truman was voted as a, as a moniker. Was there a split within the, the Jews as a democratic bloc as to how far left or how far moderate they were? There always was a, a, a part of, of the Jewish community that tended further to the left. Most Jews divided between being Democrats like Truman and being more progressive, or today, she was in between Jews voting for President Biden versus Jews who are more inclined towards, let's say, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. So the majority would be more centrist, but there always were those who, who tended further to the left. Now, Wallace is one thing. I mean, I don't think Jews were going beyond Henry Wallace. The other thing about Wallace versus Truman is that, and I think we might say, be able to say the same thing about Bernie Sanders versus Biden, is that policies aside, Henry Wallace was a better speaker. He was more charismatic. He sounded better on the radio. Truman was he was good, but he wasn't as dynamic as FDR, and he wasn't as dynamic as Henry Wallace. So, you know, as we move forward through the 20th century, what you say uh, is still important, but how you how you sound on the radio, how you look on television in front of a camera becomes more and more important. But as you say, the Jewish bloc it was split, but it wasn't split in some wide way. It was generally split between moderate left and a less moderate left. Okay. Our so guest between Democrats and progressives. Good. Our guest today again is Howard Lupovich from the Cohen Haddo Center of Judaic Studies at Wayne State University in Detroit. We're talking about the Jewish vote. Okay. There is an Alan Sherman song which is very funny which humor reflects really what's going on in the times. The song is called Harvey and Sheila. It's tuned to the tune of Havana Gila. 
and it's just a bunch of abbreviations. It's a whole story that he does. I wish I knew the words. It was, it's just really very, very funny. So he talks about these Harvey and Sheila, that they first got married. They bought a little house in Levittown in Long Island, and she worked for the for the Democratic whatever. But then they made some money, and then they moved to L.A., and they joined the, the Republican Party. So that was early 60s already. So where is this? How is this phenomenon figuring in uh, Howard Lupovich? Great question. Yeah, he switched to the GOP. That's the way things go. That's Alan Sherman's way. There you go. Oh, um, you know it. Okay. Yeah, there you go. I know, I know my Alan Sherman. That's the um, way things go. It's like that's like normal, he says. Well, it's also with a sigh, though. So uh-huh. Jews, who, Jews who were the, the, the minority of Jews were the most upwardly mobile, who, let's say, moved to the top of the middle class. They would, uh, not all. Some of them would jump the aisle, and some of them began to resonate or began to support uh, Republicans, largely for monetary reasons. Because when they when they reached that higher tax bracket, uh, voting for the party that was wanting to lower taxes made more of a difference. So, and I think <coughs> I think it's also I think it's also important to say that those those types of Jews, those successful upwardly mobile Jews, there were really there were two kinds, or. There were some who really, at this point, were thinking only about how much of their money they could keep. And I, I think that's less commendable. But I'd like to think that there were as many or more who they voted for, they switched to voting Republican so they could be taxed less. But in their own personal philanthropy, they were able to give more. And one of the reasons they wanted to be taxed less is so they would have more disposable income to donate to Jewish and other causes. So you have those, but you definitely have those two types. You have Jews who are becoming Republican more for selfish reasons or for economic reasons, but you also have those Jews who are doing that with the added caveat that they want to be able to be better philanthropists. And, you know, American Jewry has been a very philanthropic Jewish community. I mean, not least of all in Detroit. I mean, we have the most prominent examples of Jews who became more affluent, who became remarkably philanthropic. Okay. Um, okay. So, 1967, June of 1967. There's the Six Day War. This marked a real uh, paradigm shift for American Jewry. Before 67, there was a good part of American Jewry, including the entire Reform movement, which was really apathetic towards the state of Israel. Uh, Stephen Weiss was actually opposed to Zionism. He said, "You don't need Israel. We got America. What do we need Israel for?" Come 67, and now. Israel becomes this like focal point. We have these proud Jewish Americans now, and Israel's like a focus. What did that do to the Jewish voting bloc as far as like the needs of protecting and, and helping Israel, Howard Lupovich? That's a, a great question. First, first, let me just tweak a little bit what you say is that the reform movement, um, the reform movement really embraced Zionism and the state of Israel before 1967. Now, in, in, the, in 1937, the reform movement issued what was called the Columbus Platform, which modified their classic Pittsburgh Platform, which was anti-Zionist. But the Columbus Platform in 1937 uh, came out as pro-Zionist. So as a movement, the reform, the reform Judaism got on board with Zionism, really spurred on by Rabbi Stephen Wise, as you mentioned, and a few others, Judah Magnus and a few others. Um, but you're right, there still were... Reform congregation. It was it was, apath- it was apathetic before sixty seven. People really it wasn't like it wasn't it wasn't a thing to talk about. 
Right. It was something you did, but it wasn't at the top of your agenda. I think that's absolutely correct. Um, 1967 does change it. It makes if the state of Israel becomes more prominent, but also um, in, in 1967, the real, the real, you know, until 1967, you know, something that Brandeis had predicted when Brandeis became a Zionist. In 1913, he's really the first high-profile American Jew to become a Zionist. He basically said that Zionist values and American values, by which he meant American progressive values, are basically in sync. And that made it easy for the, over the majority of American Jews to be, to be able to support Zionism, to be even openly Zionist in many cases, without worrying about being accused of dual loyalty, for example. Uh, and that was true all the way till 1967. What we have in 1967 is you have a kind of, in 1967 is the first time when the notion that somehow the state of Israel is, uh, has, is not entirely a progressive state or is not a, entirely a state that supports human rights, the problem with the Palestinians introduced a complexity there. And so beginning in 1967, this is when Jews, the, 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 the notion of being being liberal or progressive on the one hand and supporting the state of Israel and its policies on the other, we have the beginning of the beginning of a complication. But I would put that change against this change too, because Jews who were more Jews who were more Republican, even before 1967, uh, if there's one Republican goal or aim, Jews embraced, like many other Republicans, it was the Cold War and for, for Republican Jews, it wasn't so much 1967 that really that prompted support for the state of Israel. It wasn't only that, but it was also the fact that in the mind of, uh, of the United States government, Israel was the American ally in the Middle East against the Soviet Union. Israel was America's foothold in the Middle East, especially when the Soviet Union started supporting Israel's Arab neighbors. And so that the Cold War became a reason to support the state of Israel, whatever your own personal Zionist views were, uh, because, you know, I mean, the, the most ardent American supporters of Israel were those who were most involved in the Cold War, President Nixon, President Reagan. And so Jews who supported Nixon and Reagan, for example, of course they were going to support the state of Israel, among other reasons, because this is what you do as a patriotic American to help fight the Soviet Union. So you have that old Brandeis notion of supporting the state of Israel as a bearer of human rights, civil rights, progressive values. But after 1948 or 1950, you also have supporting this. There are other Jews who supported the state of Israel because of the Cold War. Yeah, both those things at the same time. Okay, understood. Okay, so nowadays the Jewish voting bloc, I would say, is about 75, 80% Democrat, 20, 25% Republican. Yes. 25% is a big chunk of change. What was it that caused that part of the uh, Jewish bloc to jump the aisle, Howard Lupovich? I, I think a big part of it is uh, I think ma many Jews became became Republicans because there is a notion that in the last say in the last twenty years that the Democratic Party has uh, ha has cooled in its support of the state of Israel. Now that's an exaggerated notion. There are voices in the Democratic Party that have become more tepid in their support, but they're a minority. The Democratic Party has you know overwhelmingly supports the state of Israel. Your typical Democrat in this sense 
is not Rashida Tlaib. She is an exception and an outlier. And as maybe, I don't know, a dozen voices like her in Congress, your typical Democrat is like Ted Deutsch in Florida or President Biden or Amy Klobuchar who are, or, or, uh, or Haley Stevens, for example, who are ardent supporters of the state. But their support for the state of Israel is as intense as, as any Republican support. Now, the other twist on it is, uh, probably for the last 20 years, the most vocal supporters of the, of, of the state of Israel uh, really have been evangelical Christians. And they support the state of Israel for a completely different set of reasons that has nothing to do with Israel or Zionism or Jews. They have their own Christian self-interest that is motivating that. That's a different story in certain ways. But it's the Republican Party that that's where all evangelicals vote. It gives the impression that that's the party that's the real ardent supporter of the state of Israel. And, and also, you know, to get back to what you mentioned earlier, a lot of this is marketed. The Republican Party can market itself as the great supporter of the state of Israel because it has this very vocal evangelical block of supporters who are ardently pro-Israel. But also, it doesn't have this small but vocal enclave of critics of the state of Israel that the, Demo- that the Democratic Party has to contend with. And I use the word contend with very specifically because the vast majority of Democratic voters, Jewish and otherwise, and Democratic members of Congress and the Senate, this, this criticism of the state of Israel is something they have to contend with. They are supporters of the state of Israel. There's no chance that the Democratic Party is going to withdraw its support. It's just not going to happen. Okay, you're actually seguing into the next question that I have, which is our final yeah. question as we wrap it up. This has been wonderful and fascinating. I could donate, uh, dedicate the whole show to this. I'm having such a wonderful time. Okay, there was a uh, pr- Democratic primary last week in Maryland. A- APAC, the American Israel Political Action Committee, paid $6 million in ads, which I think in Washington that's probably like three ads, but for the uh, for the challenging uh, moderate Democrat who was pro-Israel rather than the incumbent progressive, and the with successful results, the progressive beat the incumbent. And now, in this example, in our own our own backyards, you mentioned Haley Stevens has, I think, a sixteen point lead in the polls over the other incumbent is Andy Levin, who is Jewish, Levin. and APAC is. Backing Haley Stevens, so what's the, what's the effect? Was there is, is APAC really such a formidable uh, force in the getting people to vote and voting the way for Israel? As it seems, APAC is important. I mean, I, look, I, I would say this: APAC is the most formidable pro-Jewish organization. They don't technically call themselves a lobby, but they they are as, as an inform, as a provider of information and support and money for candidates. Very important. Yeah, but as, a, real, as I wouldn't call them a lobby, I'd call them a whole hotel. Yes, I think that's a great way to put it. But but, but the thing what, what what gives APAC a big part of their impact is that for a long time APAC was really the only game of that kind in, in town, and APAC has the credibility of just being around for so long. They are the established supporters of the state of Israel. So especially for people who don't maybe not understand the nuances of what it means to be supportive of the state of Israel. Or don't understand the possibility of being critical and supportive at the same time. APEC is a nice safe bet. If you don't really understand the situation that well, it's a nice fallback position. If APEC says this is the candidate, APEC is trustworthy. And I think I think you know I think APEC has done a good job um, 
vetting and choosing which candidate is going to serve Israel best. Now, the example between Haley Stevens and Andy Levin is a great example. Um, Andy Levin, let's be clear, he is a supporter of the state of Israel. He is critical of certain policies of the Israeli government, but he, he has made it very clear he supports the right of the state of Israel to exist as a Jewish state. In that sense, he sort of inherits the view of his father and his uncle, Sandra Levin and Carl Levin. So the, the, the advantage that Haley Stevens has with respect to supporting Israel, and the reason APEC supported FUR is that while they're, I would say their support for Israel is, is comparable one to another, Andy Levin is more outspoken, A, in his willingness to criticize the policies, but also he's guilty by association of allying on other issues with politicians who are more stridently critical of the state of Israel. So on, on issues not related to Israel, Andy Levin's politics or his, his politics are more in sync with those of, let's say, Rashida Tlaib really is in many ways the, the devil in all of this. For, I mean, she is an outspoken supporter of the Palestinians because she's Palestinian. She's Palestinian-American. And so Andy Levin, what he has to deal with is he has to explain how is it that he and Rashida Tlaib can agree on policy C, D, and E, which have nothing to do with Israel, and yet he's not exactly aligned with her when it comes to the Israel-Palestinian conflict. So it's complicated for him, and I think he if he's going to have any luck in this or future election, he's going to have to he's going to have to figure out how to explain that better. Because I think he I think he's got some nice potential, but he has a he has a formidable marketing or branding challenge because he is guilty by association of uh, of being associated with people who are outspoken critics or who who deny the right of the state to exist. Haley Stevens doesn't have that problem. Haley Stevens is allied with the moderate Democrats, like President Biden, for example, or Ted Deutsch, who simply say, I, I support the state of Israel. And she and she's not associated with people who are critical. Interesting. So yeah, that's a huge advantage. Yeah, I don't know if you're and right. That's why, and that's why APEC, it was an obvious choice for APEC. Now, if Haley Stevens didn't exist, or if Andy Levin was running in a separate district, APEC would have supported him too. But it, given the choice between those two, it, it was an easy choice. The other thing, the other thing about Andy Levin is he he, uh, he associates with J Street, which is Apex rival organization, which is another another difficult thing for uh, him to explain. He, he he has a bigger branding challenge, and uh, he's going to have to work hard. He, I don't think he's going to win this time, but he's but uh, in the future he's got to have to work on work harder on navigating this complexity. Okay, that's going to do it. I've had a blast. Thank you so much, Howard. Our guest today is Howard Lupovich, who's Cohen Handow, Center for Judaic Studies at Wayne State University. I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights. Always a pleasure, Rabbi. Always a pleasure. Okay, take care. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Want assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale.
With the new year approaching, why go anywhere else for your holiday shopping when you can go to the Grove? Fully renovated, the Grove is located on Greenfield Road, just south of 696. At the Grove, you'll find the largest selection of kosher foods and wines in Michigan. Looking for fresh, round holiday challahs, honey cake, or exotic fruit for the new year? The Grove has it. The Grove has the freshest produce, gourmet dairy, deli, and meats. They even have a kosher bakery and hot takeout right on the premises. It's The Grove on Greenfield Road and 696 for all your shopping needs. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. I hope you liked that interview. Howard Lupovich, very erudite and entertaining. I always enjoy chatting with him. Okay, up next for your listening pleasure, this is Eighth Day, brand new. The song is called Look Up. Today is precious, one of a kind, yet so many ways are making me blind. Under the surface, hidden behind facades and filters. So I live in the moment, I open my eyes, all of the beauty won't pass me by. Life is much more than comments and likes, approval from strangers. more to you than what the screen will show. I look up and see there's a big world made for me. It's my life and it's my life that's worth living. You can free your mind by the power deep inside. It's your life worth more than a picture could say. All of the best things can't be erased. They're yours forever. If you feel alone and not enough, when you're lost and out of touch, there's more to you than what the screen will show. Look up and feel alive 
We all know there's an opiate epidemic, but Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community, and Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 800-603-1813. That's 800-603-1813. Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Herschel Fleming here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Up next, this is Ellie Herzlich. The song is called Rock Latate. Just give.
Some things are better the way they used to be, like the crisp feel of a cool autumn day, the serenity of a baby sleeping, or the feeling of coming home after a long trip. Franklin Cider Mills makes cider the way cider is supposed to be. Its old-fashioned, clear, crisp taste reminds you of a cool autumn day. Located in the heart of historic Franklin Village at 14 Mile and Franklin Road, Franklin Cider Mill has been making cider the same way for over a century. Always fresh, with no additives or preservatives. You just can't buy Franklin Cider in any supermarket. Franklin Cider Mill is open from Labor Day weekend to after Thanksgiving from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Come visit Franklin Cider Mill. It's kind of like coming home. Herschel Fleming here. We've got time for one more. This is brand new Benny Freed. The song is called Yama, which is Yama Vacation with the Fender of Enigma, spread out to the west, east, north, and south. Let's listen. <laughs>
Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Hey, Schultzman here. You're listening to The Jewish Show, where we're going to combine everything all at once on the last bits of this show. So just to let you know, we did actually get October paid for, so we're not going to do an appeal. But you can go to RabbiFinman.com if you want to talk to me or check out the radio shows and from past or some of the other stuff that we're doing. Or go to Jewish Ferndale if you'd like to... Uh, prepay for the big Chil Hamoid Sukkus party on Thursday with renowned artist Aaron Markowitz. He's he's going to be famous one day, and you want to say one day. It's just, I remember when I was 14 years old, maybe I was 15, I went to the Asbury Park Armory, and I saw a concert. It was Commander Cody, and it had an opening act. Okay, like all Congresses have an opening act. The opening act, I said, listen, Mike, listen, I said, this guy's good. This guy's really good. It was, it was Bruce Springsteen. He was 19 years old. Yeah, so sometimes you get on there to things when they're early. It's like, you know, so I can say, I saw Bruce Springsteen when he was 19 years old before anybody knew about him except everybody in Asbury Park because, because he was from Asbury Park. But So come and check us out at uh, jewishferndell.com and check out the other things that we have. We have a lending library and all other things going on. Do that. So now we got Sukkot coming up. Sukkot is coming up from the 9th of October all the way through the 16th of October, Tuesday night. We'll talk about the end days next week. But this week, we're talking about Sukkot. What's a Sukkot? A Sukkot is a temporary hut. Mine is made out of poles and canvas. And the one in Ferndale, which is the largest one in Ferndale, is made out of poles and a uh, nylon mesh. So you can actually see out of it. It's really cool. you got to check, come check it out. The largest sukkah in Ferndale. And the roof is made out of nothing, basically. It's just, it's just a covering. It's branches. The idea being is that we're putting our trust in God. And we're calling this the Zman Simchasena, the time of our rejoicing. After we got done with Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the days of awe. So now we're celebrating. And where are we celebrating? No, we're not celebrating in house. We're not celebrating in the sukkah, in the, in the synagogue. We're celebrating outside where you have to wear a coat because it's getting too cold in Michigan. Because... When we even when we're celebrating, we're in such a great mood. We're doing it in a way in which we have to rely on the Almighty, and that's the idea of Sukkot. Is it's putting your faith and trust in God that everything's gonna, you're going to get to, you'll get through to the other side. That's what Sukkot is all about. So you say that um, the Sukkot is supposed to be four walls. But the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, who was really, really, really into doing mitzvahs exact, perfect, better, over the top, 
when it came to the mitzvah of sukkah, he didn't have four complete walls. It says he had like the, the minimum number of walls you can have. You could have two walls and then have like a little bit of a wall at, uh, adjacent to one of the two walls just sticking out. So it's like two walls in a bit. And with him, one of the walls, it didn't come down to the floor. The other one, it didn't to the ground. The other one didn't reach all the way up to the roof. And uh, it's like uncharacteristic of why he would have such a thing. He had just barely enough schach. The Rebbe, Lubavitcher Rebbe, he had a sukkah. He could have rented it out all year round. It had it had indoor plumbing. It did not have a toilet. You know, to go to the bathroom. But it, it did have indoor plumbing. It had closets. It had an air conditioner, a heater. The schach was unbelievably thick on top. There's so much. And the boards themselves, it took like a half a dozen guys just to, to hold each board. They were like, these were like walls that got erected. It had a little window in one of them with a little shade thing going on. So, but the Baal Shem Tov? No, just what we can get by. And someone asked him, Reb, why? So he said, there's some people that just really can't afford to get it together and get the materials for making a sukkah like a house like this. So, you know, so he said, I'm going to be their adversary. That when it comes time when they're 120 and they're standing before God and God says, why did you make such a flimsy, flimsy sukkah? They could say, look at the Baal Shem Tov, Hasidic leader. Got to say, okay. That's why he did that. So there's also the mitzvah of Lulav and Esrog. And uh, the idea also being this idea of unification. The sukkah is an idea of unification. Everybody can sit in the sukkah all together. And uh, the lulav and esrog are four represent different types of people that we put them all together and we bless them all singularly in one. This is a story that in in Europe, it was very hard to get an esrog. Okay, they either came from Israel or Morocco or Italy. I would imagine most of them that came from uh, from from that got into to Central to Eastern Europe were coming from Italy. Now there's a problem is because. In the early 1700s, late 1700s, early 1800s, the border from there was a prohibition of bringing in any French or Italian goods into the country. So an esrog had to be smuggled. And the city of Berdichev, which is a city about the size of Southfield, had many tens of thousands of Jews. There was one, one set. That's it for the whole entire town, and people would line up the whole day just to be able to shake it. So it says. The, the rabbi's secretary was really, really, really excited to do the mitzvah. But the first one to do the mitzvah is the rabbi. The rabbi does it first, but he couldn't hold himself back. Yeah, I got it there. So he woke up really early, and as soon as it was sunrise, as the earliest he could do it, he took the esrog, but the rabbi's supposed to do it first, and his hands were shaking, and he dropped the esrog damaging it. They can't, Esrogen can't be repaired. It's a piece of fruit. Once something falls off of it, it's it's no good. So now this entire city of Berdichev has no Esrog. Tens of thousands of Jews will not bless the Lulav and Esrog that year. So he knows he's going to get run out of town he's going to, if he doesn't get killed by the masses and throngs. But he had to go and talk to the rabbi. And he went crying to the rabbi, and he told him what had happened, that he couldn't. 
The Rebbe just looked at him and said, Master of the world, look at your children. They're so excited to do your commandments that they can't hold themselves back. We should all have a good year. That's going to do it for this year week. We wish you a happy Sukkot, and we should wish you a happy, good year. And we hope we get a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope we get a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you do have, indeed, a happy Sukkot. We'll see you, hopefully, in Ferndale. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.